Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mets fans, welcome to episode 251 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us, as always, this week. Uh, it's a bit of a bummer this week, because it's a bit of a bummer this week. I uh, don't have too much more to say about that. Let's get right into my conversation with Chris McShane, talking about, well, what a bummer this week is. Well, Chris, since we last spoke, the Mets have... Uh... Well, they've been terrible, I guess is the only really way to put it. Uh, they traded Curtis Granderson, which we can get to in a minute. They've lost uh, 9 of 10, I believe, or maybe 8 of 10. I'm not, I'm not exactly. Yeah, I think it's 8. eight they're 2-0 in games that I've been to oh, on okay. this homestand. So. Okay, so 2-8. Uh, <laughs> uh, they have now lost Stephen Matz for the season due to elbow surgery. They have lost Zach Wheeler for the season. And today, while swinging a bat and not making contact, Michael Conforto dislocated his left shoulder, more or less putting him out for, I mean, a substantial period of time, if not for the rest of the season as well. Right. So, so let's let's try and be optimistic here. What are the things that you're going to keep watching for the last five weeks of the season? Well, uh, Rosario and Smith. Yep. Still. Um, you know, Jonas Espedes has been doing good things. I think he's been doing more good things than people have uh, given him credit for when he's been healthy and on the field this year. But those guys, uh, and then I think for me, there's just sort of this like, you know, I wrote a thing on the site about 
the Mets needing to get starting pitching and uh, in like the free agent market or elsewhere, but something this winter to not just go into the next season with the same guys. I don't necessarily expect them to actually do that. <laughs> um, you know, I wouldn't be stunned if they brought in one starting pitcher, but I, you know, two, which is basically what I'm, you know, hoping and, and asking for here. Um, two would surprise me. So, uh, guys like Chris Flexen, guys like Rafael Montero, you know, I don't know that there is an outcome that makes anybody like them uh, a viable fifth starter for next year. But I just don't expect, you know, Harvey Matz Wheeler to all be healthy and good uh, to start the, you know, start the season or, or to last through the season. So it's... You know, it's not very exciting on a day-to-day basis. You know, uh, Jacob DeGrom's the only pitcher who <laughs> I think you might say, oh, DeGrom's pitching. I might want to, like, tune in or, you know, go to the game specifically to see that. But I'm just curious to see what some of these other guys, um, you know, what they can do, how they look over the next five weeks, and, you know, do they put themselves in the, in the conversation for – some sort of role on the 2018 team. Yeah, I would say that uh, I'm interested to watch Gazelman over the next few weeks to see how yeah. he how he recovers from uh, from the uh, the not caring incident slash his general ineffectiveness this year to see if he can put together a few good starts. I'm uh, I'm interested to look at the bullpen a little bit. Like I, you know, I think Chase and Bradford's been much better than advertised thus far. Interested to see if he can maybe keep that up. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised with Brandon Nimmo's approach at the plate over the last few weeks. Yeah. I'm interested to maybe see if he can put together some more quality at bats. Basically, I'm just looking to evaluate the, uh, the guys on the bubble. That's pretty much my, the goal of, of the rest of the season for me. And, and I, I'm no master evaluator. I'm just really trying to get in my, my good AAOP stuff ahead of time. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, Bradford has been surprisingly good. Seawald has done a lot of good things. And Seawald now, you know, it's kind of crazy at the moment, has 56 innings that he's thrown uh, in the bullpen. And, you know, he hasn't even been on the major league roster for the entire season. So that's – at least those guys are putting themselves in a spot that you could imagine them being a good, you know, sixth or seventh reliever. Right. Uh, and then maybe, you know, a fifth or sixth, if things, you know, happen and they get thrown into those roles. Um, you know, and it's something I've said, uh, probably a few times at this point, but all these trades that the Mets have made, including the Granderson trade, um, over the weekend have brought back, guys who you know they're relief arms the 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 Mets if they're not going to spend and we can get into that more later because there are guys that they maybe should spend on but if they're not going to spend on relief pitchers then they need the ones who come up through the organization to be good Uh, so you know even if one or two guys make it that's a significant portion of a uh, major league bullpen absolutely you know, uh, you'd hope that of all of these folks they traded for, if one of them 
can can be an impactful player, if not in 2018, then maybe 2019, then you think, okay, well, these, these trades were, were something more than a salary dump. But, you know, I, I guess we'll see on that, on that part. Um, so, you know, you and I collectively have been watching baseball for uh, 60-ish years, <laughs> if you add yeah. our ages together. Um, have you ever seen someone dislocate a shoulder on a swing without making contact before? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure it's happened before, but just in terms of me actually, I mean, in this case, I heard it on the radio, uh, but in terms of being tuned in and, you know, Mm -hmm. seeing or experiencing that, I don't recall ever seeing that. I've definitely seen injuries on swings. Like, I don't remember who it was, but I feel like I saw a game on TV where somebody broke an arm swinging or something, you know, something along those lines. Uh, that could be my memory. Just making that up. I don't know, but, uh, it just seems to me like this is the latest in just an almost hilarious string of injuries. If it wasn't the Mets, if these weren't real people, this would be very funny Yeah, because how many more ways can the Mets injure themselves? This season, it's almost impressive the ways they've found to injure themselves. But this, oh, this, yeah. this in particular, just seems like the worst possible, uh, the worst possible outcome for Conforto. He's having a great season. He is, you know, he was on pace to hit over thirty home runs. He was enjoying, you know, a really really fine season. He was the offensive bright spot for this team. And now he may not swing a bat again for the Mets this season. Uplifting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my I, I would expect that he wouldn't. I am not a doctor, uh, but it just doesn't seem like he would get back into a game this year. Yeah, I agree. I think especially because there's probably no real reason to push him into a game this year. Right, I mean, he he was excellent this year. You know, good all-around hitter, plenty of power. Um, you know, solid defense. Pretty much everything you could ever want Michael Conforto to be. Yeah, he's he's slumped a little bit as of late, but that's not uh, that's no reason to panic. You know. Yeah, I mean, even then, he you know, the power was still there. You know, the average on base, I think, might have dropped a little, but he was still hitting home runs and putting up weeks that were pretty good overall. If this is it for him, it's uh, it's 4.1 war on fan graphs for him for the year. That's in an abbreviated season under that assumption. Uh, that's a really good year. Absolutely. And, you know, this is a guy who spent 2016. I don't think anybody ever doubted that he – would bounce back and be a good major league player. But he gave reason to maybe be concerned about what his overall career would look like. And this year he he pretty much erased any memory of that season. Yeah. You know, I I was almost optimistic last night because, you know, thinking about Conforto, seeing how Rosario and Smith hit last night, you started to get a picture of a, a nucleus of a team that could be together for quite some time. You know, you, you throw Cespedes in there, and all of a sudden you've got, you know, you've got the beginnings of something. 
And uh, not that one or two good games from Smith is going to turn me into the biggest fan of his in the world, but it just you started to see something coming together, and then to see this injury today. Not that it breaks up that core for the future. It's just a depressing reminder that baseball hurts. Right. So. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm hoping that we look back on Conforto's 2016 season um, similarly as you may look back on the year that Robinson Cano was bad when he was 25. You know, the ages are a little bit different. But, you know, overall, I don't know if – I mean, Conforto was on a pace to hit home runs uh, at a clip like that. They're not quite, you know, the same hitter. Uh, And and Cano is a very, very – positive comp oh, yeah two left-handed hitters who can hit for power but also be more than that um you know if the rest of his career goes on to look like Cano's does on a on a stat sheet then uh you know uh, i'll be very happy and hopefully the mets won't you know let him walk and pay whatever the uh you know 2022 version of jacoby ellsbury is instead <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um i'm very curious to see over the next uh couple of seasons if the mets can start tying up some of this young talent because you know the rights and reyes of the world they signed to very team-friendly extensions early in their careers and then you saw it with um with Lagaris. They they tried you know they, they tried to sign him to a deal that would make make sense and that they wound up somewhat you know losing out on that deal even though Lagares has still been useful he's not been the player they thought they were signing to that extension but you know they haven't signed a single pitcher to a uh, to an extension yet and I'm I'm wondering if the Mets finances are so bad that you're not going to see them trying to resort to this uh, just to help with arbitration which is sort of crazy to have to say but very possible at this point. Yeah, I mean, either that or they're, you know, that concerned about injuries, which in, you know, right now there's only two pitchers that I would consider giving extensions to. Yeah, Syndergaard and DeGrom, I presume. Yes, and it's funny when uh, Harvey was coming off his Tommy John, I know it wasn't a thing that was uh, likely to be agreed upon by him uh, and, and his agent, but there's sort of an opportunity there, I thought, to uh, you know, guarantee him a chunk of money and have him give up some time, uh, and it, obviously his recovery from that injury went very well. But something where you know the player get takes some guaranteed money at the risk that he might be great and could have made more, but the team takes some risk of you know laying out money for a guy who might be hurt. In, in hindsight, doing a, a Lagaris type deal even. Um, for Harvey, might have been bad, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, you know that. That's also like not the, the exact same numbers, but like apply the concept of Ligaris to Harvey, right? And, and and it might look bad. I mean, it's funny. Like to me, that is the least Matt Harvey thing in the world to do. Like you know, right. uh, and it would have been a good, or could have been a good thing to do. Absolutely, uh, depending on how next year goes. Yeah, but you know, you've 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 heard the Harvey story. You know, the guy was going to only hold that he would wouldn't sign for less than a million dollars uh, coming out of the draft. You know, and uh, just you know, a guy who considers himself who who has a very very uh, nuanced understanding of his own value, you know, or his own perceived right. value. 
So, you know, him taking a deal that would be banking against that not even banking, that would be insurance against uh lesser performance is just so unlike what we've seen from Harvey thus far. Um, oh yeah. But sure. I agree, would have been very smart for him more than likely looking at the way that this all progressed. Yeah. And um, yeah, um I mean, the nice thing with Ligaris is that at least even in the financial reality that the Mets are in, whatever that is precisely, um, that what's left on his contract isn't like a major albatross. Like he can still, he's still a rosterable player if only for his defense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, he's making more than he should be given the way he's just not hit. <laughs> But, but you know, then he does things like uh, last night when he, you know, comes in. And why Arizona sent the runner, I have no idea. But, you know, he comes charging in on a ball, catches it easily, and then makes a perfect throw home to, yeah. uh, you know, to turn a a double play from the outfield. So. I mean, I, I still think I'm I'm enough of a believer in him to to be comfortable with him as half of a platoon for next season. Right. I mean, health is the probably the biggest thing as a knock against him. You know, he can be a bad hitter and still be a useful major league player. But uh, but yeah, let's hope he can. I don't know. It's hard. You can't really like dial it back. Right. Because he's hurt himself making catches. More than anything in the last two years. Um, I don't know how you balance being a great defender, but then also knowing like, ah, hey, I can't, I can't do that, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, if this is probably as good a time as any to bring up the Mets recently departed outfielder of Curtis Granderson. Uh, I think everybody who listens to this podcast is aware of your intense love for Curtis. And, uh, I mean, I think every Mets fan should be thanking their lucky stars that they had Curtis Grandison on this team for almost four seasons. The signing was, you know, not very well received among many Mets fans, myself included. I will I will totally own up that I thought four years for Curtis Granderson was silly, and I was dead wrong. He has been a such a positive force on this team, both on and off the field. He seems like one of the truly good guys in the game. I'm going to miss watching Granderson play, and he's not nearly as beloved in my heart as he appears to be in yours. So, Chris, <laughs> tell us why you're going to miss Curtis quite so much. Uh, I mean, it, the, everything, really. Uh, but the the production on the field primarily, uh, and that's something that I think I think a lot of Mets fans appreciated it, and, and seeing him go in this trade, uh, I got the sense that it was bittersweet for a lot of people as it was for, for me and hopefully plenty of other Mets fans. But, uh, but yeah, it was just a, a guy who has stayed healthy, you know, which is something of a major accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> Especially on this team. <laughs> right, compared to his peers uh, and, and teammates that, you know, he – maintained a level of production that I think was totally in line with what you could have expected from him. Uh, you know, even at his worst, he was better than a league average hitter. And at his best, he was much better than that. And, uh, you know, in 2015, this was a guy who 
to me was the MVP of the team uh, throughout the regular season. He he had some excellent games in the playoffs as well. Um, and yeah, he's just an easy guy to root for. When somebody has that excellent off-field reputation, uh, it just enhances it. And he had the the personality and the attitude that you'd like to see from all baseball players. And, you know, we've talked about it before that, hey, Lucas Duda was a quiet guy. And, I mean, what am I going to – I miss We Follow Lucas Duda. I know it still exists, but, you know, I miss Curtis Granderson bugging the hell out of Lucas Duda with an iPhone. (laughs) You know, that's – that's something that I feel like I, I fully got to embrace it when it was happening, but I miss that. And I will miss Granderson hitting big home runs for this team, which is something that he did plenty of uh, in the time that he was here. So yeah, just a, a, a good person and easy person to root for. And somebody who, you know, was always capable. He was never leading the league in home runs, but he was always capable of hitting a home run uh, in a big spot. And, you know, since he's traded to the Dodgers over the weekend, he's already hit three. Um, you know, so it's just this is a good player who was signed to a contract that he was absolutely worth, um, and I think made that transition from being a Yankee to being a Met very smoothly. Yeah. You know, if if you expected him to maintain forty home run seasons coming out of Yankee Stadium's bandbox for left-handed hitters, I don't know what to tell you. Like, that was, that was just not a realistic expectation. <laughs> I uh, I hope that Mets fans everywhere at some point in the last week have enjoyed some salmon on his behalf. Yes. To to celebrate his, uh, his, his, his truly enjoyable three and a half years in Queens. Uh, for those that uh, that care about this sort of thing, uh, I also have seen Chris, uh, I don't know if this was on Slack or if this was on Twitter, uh, advocate for bringing Granderson back on a one-year deal. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sign me so, up. So for those of you that are keeping track of our crazy uh, predictions for the offseason already, you know, uh, that's part of Chris's AAOP. Yes. And, hey, if Conforto is going to play center field or if you're going to have Nimmo Lagares and, uh, and Conforto, you could do a lot worse depending on what he wants to do. Uh with with next year and his career beyond that um you could do a lot worse than having somebody who's capable of playing center a left-handed hitter who hits for power you know jay bruce might take a more significant commitment to bring back uh granderson i don't know what he wants but if he's looking at a very short-term deal to to play you could do a lot worse than that i think i've it's been both i i will i will advocate for that anywhere i can I uh, I'm not opposed to the idea. I'm really not. I I don't think they're going to do it for for right. a number of reasons. But I'm not opposed to that idea. Right. If I had to make a choice from a baseball perspective, strictly, I would rather bring back Addison Reed. Okay. Just because there's a bigger need there. Like if we're counting, you know, every dollar and and the budget is tight, uh, I'd I'd rather. It, that be of all the guys who left i think that's the one who i would prioritize bringing back the most but if they can bring back multiple then hey the finances are better than we think yeah i don't think they're gonna bring back anybody right no my that would be my guess yeah i i just have the feeling they're gonna be bringing back 
the cheapest players they can get. <laughs> and uh, none of the guys they traded away are going to be cheap enough, is my guess. Yeah. Uh, we're already depressed about the offseason. Uh, hey. Um, so, uh, I guess the question now becomes, which of the traded away Mets, uh, I guess which team that has a traded away Met on it are you going to be rooting hardest for for the playoffs? Uh, and I guess, well, and the, the trading, the, the non-waiver trading deadline is not over yet. So, as Drupal Cabrera could join a team in the next couple days, right? Um, but yeah, yeah. No, I think so. LA is tough because Chase Utley's on the team, right? But yep. we've already lived through the worst case scenario. And Justin Turner, and Justin Turner. Yes, and I, I, I'm sure we'll never hear the end of it if Justin Turner is on a World Series winning team. And he's a significant contributor to that team. Don't get me wrong, but like one player on a World Series winning team that also has players like Clayton Kershaw on it. <laughs> um, I'm sure we'd never hear the end of it. I could deal with that because uh, I mean, I, who doesn't love Kershaw in isolation? You don't love him when he's facing your team, but one of the greatest pitchers of all time, I think. Uh, you know, Granderson's there. I've always liked Puig. It, like there's there's enough there to like and uh rich hill's a really cool story uh you know that you know that i've followed um sort of through a personal connection to to him uh, himself um darvish is a guy i've always liked you know it's just they they sort of have this collection of players who i've respected and admired for their talents despite the fact that they weren't Mets, except for Granderson. Um, I, I can't say that I respected and admired the talents of Justin Turner when he was a Met. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I could get over the bad parts for the good parts with the Dodgers. Um, I'd be perfectly happy if the Red Sox did it. Uh, you know, obviously, having just mentioned the Addison Reed aspect, uh if the Brewers could knock the Cubs out of the playoffs, that would be great because I'm, I was sick of the Cubs before. <laughs> I think before they even won, I think I was sick of the Cubs. Um, so I'm ready for them to, to be gone. Uh, uh, yeah. I, any of them, any other uh, priorities for you? I mean, with those teams, I would, I, if the Rays could make it to the playoffs, that would actually be my first rooting choice. Yeah. Uh, only because I have no beef with I, I have no feelings about the Rays one way or the other, except I feel sorry for the stadium they play in. <laughs> that's that's my that's my like overall Rays take is that yeah. I, that is truly a terrible ballpark to see a baseball game in. Um, other than that, though, you know I uh, I do not like the Red Sox mainly because of Red Sox fans. I do not really like the Dodgers mainly because of the aforementioned Chase Utley. Uh, you know, in the in the immortal words of that little girl with a sign, Utley, you butley, and yes. uh, and also the Justin Turner thing. Uh, you know, so I guess you know, the Brewers are a good story. I would like to see them knock out the Cubs, as you said, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I would be okay with any of them. It's not like uh, I, mean, I would take any of them over the Nationals. Let's put it that way. Yeah, any day of the week. Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's there are clear priorities here. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, we got an email this week from our friend David, and uh, he had uh, two quick questions. Well, I guess three questions here. The first is uh, maybe we can get a top 10 pick that makes a huge impact down the line based on this terrible second half of the season. Do you think there's a chance the Mets will have one of the top 10 picks if things continue at this uh, pace? Yeah, I mean, depending if it goes really poorly, they might get into uh, an, either, yeah, an even higher echelon of that top right. 10 but i it, i'd be shocked if they didn't wind up in that group no matter what happens the rest of the way you know even if harvey and Syndergaard and familia come back and are varying degrees of good um they've traded away all the offense not all but they've traded away a lot of the players who kept things afloat on offense while the pitching staff just completely you know disappeared right so, so yeah, no, I think I think they will be in the top ten, pretty much no matter what, and they might be in the top five. <laughs> I mean, at this point, tanking makes a lot of sense. I, I know people hate that, and you still have to sell tickets, and I understand all of that. But a top, five, you know, if you look at historically at draft picks, there's almost no such thing as a sure bet. But the closest you're going to get to a sure bet is a top five draft pick. Yeah. So. It really does make a difference going from 10 to 5. So, yeah, David, let's hope for that. Um, his second question, he says, I really hope Sandy isn't expecting this bullpen to be anchored next year by Familia, Blevins, and Ramos. I really hope we go out and get another guy like a Sishek or McGee or trade for Herrera. I would also like to add a starter like Lance Lynn and send Wheeler to the pen. Um, Wheeler to the pen is an interesting idea. I think everybody has flirted with that idea in their mind. Um but at this point, there are, there are two sort of uh, hindrances for me with that. Number one is I don't know if Wheeler is healthy enough to pitch, let alone pitch out of the pen. Um, but also, you know, I just don't know if uh, if there's a better option than Wheeler right now, even if they got one starting pitcher as a free agent. I still think Wheeler might be the, the, the number five starter in that in that case. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I agree with all this stuff um i mean i already brought up reed kind of preempted the email a little bit with that but I'd, I'd love to have him back or somebody else of his caliber uh and with the starting pitchers i yeah yes you know i mean i it, there's a lot of free agents there are a lot of options they might not all be super exciting but they might be better bets to be effective or healthy than Steven Matz and Zach Wheeler, who, you know, combined, I'm not sure if you can get one full season of starts out of. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I treat those guys basically like fill out the rotation, you know, headed up with DeGrom and Syndergaard, uh, fill out the rotation from there, maybe have some of the internal guys competing for one spot or whatever, and then if by some chance you're all healthy, two or three of you are going to the bullpen, and that's just the way it is. You know? Yeah. Uh, you, you can't... On an individual basis, I'm sure that that would not necessarily go over well, but you also have to be realistic that a team can't just wait and wait and wait for everybody to be healthy and then, you know, get into a situation like they were this year. So... Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And the third thing uh, they wanted to say is that he's not freaking out about Mats yet. 
because there are lots of lefty starters that have had terrible years at the start of their careers. Uh, see Lester, Leiter, and Pettit as examples. Uh, he, I, I should note he sent this before Mats was out for the rest of the season and had elbow surgery. Um, I mean, he's not wrong. There are a lot of lefties that have had bad starts to, this, to their career, that have had bad seasons early in their careers. That said, I don't know if Matt's outside of a, a couple of months here or there has ever had even a three- or four-month stretch that I would consider to be very good and healthy. That's that's the, the key here is you know, when he's healthy, he's been all right, but he hasn't been healthy. So I don't know if you can count on – I don't know if you can compare him to those other guys because those other guys, for the most part, were healthier earlier. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, now that we know that he wasn't healthy, that might change, you know, things a little bit here, but it, it's tough. It's it, it's a guy who, you know, we've seen pitch extremely well as a starter, but it's just not, it, it, it's not something you can count on. And, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he goes on to throw a lot of innings and you know get past all this, but it just seems really unlikely at this point that that'll ever happen. You know, I th- if he eclipses his 2015 innings total in one season, I would be surprised. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't even that high, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, let's um, let's try and be uh. A little bit optimistic about the next few weeks, and let's uh, let's meet back here next week to find something else depressing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many possibilities. That world is our oyster. This is Steve Seiper, and I'm back to go for our minor league players of the week for week 20. The Las Vegas 51s went 5-2, and two, giving them a 51-77 and 77 record, putting them 13 games behind the Salt Lake Bees and the El Paso Chihuahuas, both of whom are tied for first place. And if it wasn't clear with a 51-77 and 77 record, the 51s are obviously way out of uh, postseason contention. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 6-1 and one with one rain postponement, putting them at 75-49, and 49, which is six and a half games behind the Trenton Thunder for first place. A little week, about a week ago, uh, Binghamton was behind Trenton by about 10 games, so there's a chance that the Ponies could actually overtake the Thunder for first place in the last couple of weeks of the season. But even if they don't, they're pretty much guaranteed a spot in the Eastern League playoffs. The St. Lucie Mets went 4-3 and three this week and are 24-33 and 33 in the second half, which puts them 13 and a half games behind the Fort Meyer Miracles for first place. The Columbia Fireflies went 4-3, and three, giving them a 23-33 and 33 record in the second half, which is 11 and a half games behind the Charleston River Dogs and uh, giving them a playoff elimination number of 2. Brooklyn went 0-5 and, and are now 15-42 and 42 for the year which is 22 games behind Staten Island, and that's all I have to say about that. Kingsport Mets went 3-2 and two and are 26-29 and 29 for the year, and the GCL Mets 1-6 and six and are 15-31 and 31 for the year. So our pitcher of the week for this week, week 20, is Ricky Knapp. He pitched seven innings, allowing four hits, one run, walking none, striking out nine, 
and had a 80 game score. So, Ricky Knapp, uh, Mason Avenue's 18th top prospect coming into the year, is not having a good season. Uh, through 25 starts, he has a 5.97 ERA in 144.2 innings. He's given up 184 hits, walked 35, and struck out 75. If you go back and look at his pitching log, he's been pretty inconsistent. There's some decent games, but there's just as many huge stinkers as there are decent games. Uh, there's a lot of games with 10 more ten or more hits. There's a lot of games with 6 or more runs scored, and there's a lot of home runs uh, given up. He just got sent back down to Binghamton, which is where the game that he pitched this week, um, that's where he pitched. Um, but Knapp is going to do a lot better in Binghamton than he is going to be in uh, Vegas. Uh, 40 innings that he pitched there last year, he posted a 2.90 ERA with 31 hits, 10 walks, and 40 strikeouts. And I don't know if he's going to have as much success this time around as he did last year, because last year he allowed zero home runs in 40 innings, and that's kind of hard to do. But he's definitely going to fare a lot better upstate than he was in Las Vegas. Knapp just really isn't the kind of pitcher that's designed to have success in the uh, Pacific Coast League. His fastball sits about 88 to 92, which is about fringe to average for a right-hander. And then he complements that with a curveball, a slider, and a changeup, giving him a four-pitch mix. And then he occasionally mixes in a cutter uh, to keep left-handers honest. But the thing is that all of his pitches are basically fringe average. Uh, the curveball is a big bender with 11-5 break, and he could throw that for strike, so buried in the dirt. Uh, the slider has decent tilt and depth, and he uses it to get batters chasing out of the zone most of the time. And then the changeup is a bit stiff. It doesn't have that much uh, fade, but it has good velocity separation, about 10 miles or so from the fastball. And then generally speaking, he could command all of his pitch as well, uh, which is why he posts very low walk totals, and he usually hovers about 60-70% to of strikes thrown in individual starts. But the PCL environment, it pretty much takes the whatever bite that he does have uh, off of his breaking balls, and that puts a lot more pressure on his fastball, and his fastball is average at best. And PSCL kind of veteran sluggers, they feast on that kind of stuff. Uh, that's why in the PCL he's given up so much more contact. And in the PCL, you know, a lot of that contact, a lot of those hits, they go for home runs. Knapp has always been kind of a fringy top 25 prospect, but I think that he'll end up uh, in the back end of the list again next season, despite the kind of season that he's having this year. He's basically one of only a handful of guys in the system that are near the top of the minor league ladder. And, you know, truth be told, the organizational prospect depth, whatever you want to call it, has taken a pretty big hit with promotions of Ahmed Rosario, Dom Smith, Rob Gazelman, trades, um, Gabriel Yano is gone, Morante Gonzalez... Injuries to Desmond Lindsay, Ali Sanchez, Thomas Abucky, Cameron Plank, and a couple of other guys. And then guys just not really developing like we'd want to see, like Marcos Molina, uh, Wilmer Vicera, Gavin Gaccini, Justin Dunn, a couple of other guys. So Nap will probably be kicking around the back of the list last, uh, next year. And now our hitter of the week is Jace Boyd. He went 13 for 27 last week with three doubles, a triple, two home runs, nine RBI, two walks, three strikeouts, and a random stolen base. 
So with the week that he had, he actually raised his batting line from 270, 347, 472 to 300, 377, 537, all in 79 games. And that comes out to a uh, 134 WRC+. Plus, and that's not too bad for what it's worth. Dom Smith uh, this season with Las Vegas had a 330 386 519 line in 144 games which out which came out to a 133 WRC plus. So I mean I'm not saying anything I'm just saying but you know Dom Smith is also a 21 year old with pedigree and Boyd is not exactly a journeyman or anything but he's basically 26 year old minor league filler so Dom obviously uh gets the benefit of the doubt. But because of that, Jace really does not have too much of a future. Um, Smith is ahead of him in the pecking order, and things really need to go haywire for Jace Boyd to surpass Dom Smith in the organizational depth chart. And even if something did... Um, Peter Alonso is not that far behind uh, Boyd, and Alonso has much flashier and traditional first-base tools. So, really, you know, that's it for Boyd, I guess. Uh, expect to see him in Korea in a few years, I guess. And then speaking of light-hitted, uh, light-power-hitting first baseman in Korea, uh, we have a James Loney update. He was released by the Braves in mid-May, and then he signed at the LG Twins almost two months later in mid-July. And in 20 games so far with them, he's hitting two ninety-two with three home runs. So I expect that uh, Jace Boyd will probably have a similar fate if he wants to continue playing baseball when eventually the Mets uh, have no real interest in keeping him around. So those are our Money League Players of the Week for Week 20. I'm Steve Saipa, and I'll talk with everyone next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. current season fades away more and more, let's take a look back, nearly 50 years back, to when the Mets worked their miracle of 1969. Here are the five best games from that amazing regular season. At number five, it's an August 19th marathon at Shea against the San Francisco Giants. Today, a 14-inning contest would result in a parade of pitchers. On this occasion, there were only three needed. The Mets sent out Gary Gentry to start, and after ten scoreless innings, gave way to Tug McGraw for the final four. The Giants' rubber arm was Hall of Famer Juan Marichal. As his offense failed to produce a run, Marichal was dazzling as he was durable. Into the 14th he went, having allowed six hits and fanning 13. But with one out in the bottom of the 14th, he made his costliest mistake. Tommy Agee took him deep and gave Marichal the unluckiest of losses. But for the fortunate Mets, it was a different story. Their fifth straight win, and seventh in the past ten games, although they were still a ways back of the NL East leading Chicago Cubs. All that would change soon enough. By September 12th, the Mets had leapt past the free-falling Cubs and into first place. Their doubleheader with the Pittsburgh Pirates combining to create the number four entry in our list, 
was one of many signs that this incredible turnaround was providential. One quality that made Gil Hodges' 69 squad so memorable was its ability to win by any means possible, even if it requires your pitchers to do a little more than they're asked. In the first game, Jerry Kuzman gave up just three hits, held the Bucks without a run, and produced one of his own. It came in the fifth on a single. That proved to be most important, as New York prevailed by that slim one to nothing margin. It's quite rare to see the pitcher do all the necessary work to win, but this was a year where reality took a vacation. The nightcap was nearly a mirror image of the contest that preceded it. Don Cardwell's two-out, second-inning single scored Bud Harrelson for the first run, and as the rest of the Mets offense struggled, it would be the only run. Fortunately, Cardwell, like Kuzman, was just as ungenerous to Pittsburgh hitters. Don gave way to Tug McGraw in the ninth, who finished off a second straight shutout. Three nights later, another sign that the 1969 National League East crown was preordained. The number three game on our list came against the St. Louis Cardinals at Bush Stadium. A number that stands out from this contest is 19, the amount of strikeouts Steve Carlton compiled against New York's lineup. But the number that matters, and the number that made the difference in a typical Miracle Mets win, is two, the home runs Ron Swoboda hit. His last came in the top of the eighth and put New York ahead 4-3, to three, a lead that Tug McGraw preserved. It put them four and a half games clear of the Chicago Cubs with 15 to play. The Mets, once again, showed that they didn't need to have a lot of offense. They just needed to have enough. Now to number two, in a two-game series that all but officially swung the NL East race in the Mets' favor. To believe in curses is to believe in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. In the realm of sports, the implication of a jinx is merely concealing poor on-field performance or off-the-field judgment. Having gone more than 100 years without winning a World Series, the Chicago Cubs and their fans pin blame on everything from a billy goat to Steve Bartman. As the 1969 pennant race tightened up, with two and a half games separating the two main contenders, Shea Stadium was host to more than 50,000 fans in each, along with one fateful feline. The two games set opened with the brushback war. Hoping to set the tone and ignite his own ball club, which was suffering through a five-game losing streak, Cubs starter Bill Hands decked leadoff hitter Tommy Agee with the pitch. Agee's method of retaliation... How about a two-run home run his next time up? But before A.G. went deep, Jerry Kuzman still felt there was a score to settle. He drilled Ron Sano to lead off the second inning. The Cubs weren't totally unnerved, as they tied the game at two in the middle of the sixth. The Mets, though, came back to take the lead in the bottom half. A.G. scored on a close play at the plate, one that catcher Randy Hundley disputed vigorously, but to no avail. He should have known that Cubs' destiny had run dry. New York held on for a 3-2 win to close Chicago's divisional lead to a game and a half. Then, the next night, when a black cat scurried behind home plate and stood near the Cubs' dugout, some on the visiting side figured its fate was sealed. The Mets swept the two-game series behind Tom Seaver, and the black cat became the ideal visualization of the Cubs' demise and the Mets' rise to the top of the NL East. 
Their unlikely journey from cellar dwellers to the penthouse unofficially broke ground when they ran off an 11-game win streak from late May to early June, a streak that left them at 29-23. and 23. Although they were already turning the baseball world on its ear, the Mets were still a ways back of red-hot Chicago. New York needed to take them down a peg. The wearing down of the supposedly invincible Cubs came on July 8th and is the number one regular season game from 1969. Before 69, games at Shea Stadium were always fun, never important. Backed by five and a half in the NL East, and with more games behind them in the regular season than in front of them, the Mets were in a position to which they were completely unaccustomed. The Cubs took a 3-1 lead into the ninth inning at Shea, with Ferguson Jenkins on the mound. Ken Boswell, pinch hitting for Jerry Kuzman, got a double when center fielder Don Young misjudged a fly ball. Young's misfortune did not end there. After Tommy Agee was retired, it was Don Clendenin, the crucial June acquisition from Montreal, who hit one deep to left center. Young nearly made a running grab near the wall, but couldn't haul it in. Clendenin trotted into second. Boswell, holding up initially to see if Young would catch the fly, only could make it to third. But he would soon make it home as Cleon Jones delivered the third straight double. Two runs came in to tie it at three. Following an intentional walk and a ground out, and with Jenkins still on the mound, Ed Cranepool, the only Met who had been there since year one, dropped a single just in front of left fielder Billy Williams. The Mets took it, somehow, by a score of 4-3. to three. Many more wonderful and astonishing moments were to come, like Tom Seaver's near-perfect game one night later. But this day, July 8th, was the day when the miracle began. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter at BrianWright86. Well, friends, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com. Check out all of our Mets-related content there, sad as it may be. We appreciate you checking it out. You can also find the site on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. You can download the show directly from blogtalkradio.com or find it in Apple Podcasts or in Stitcher or in your podcatcher of choice. However you choose to get it, please rate, review, and subscribe. We do appreciate all three of those actions. And uh, you can always email the show, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Like David did this week, we would love to hear from you and uh, helps us to sort of find things to talk about during this uh this sad end of August. And uh, you can follow all of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Steve is at Steve Saipa. And Brian is at Brian Wright 86 So let's hope no one else has a catastrophic injury. And let's hope they trade as Dribble Cabrera for Mike Trout. And until next time, let's go Mets. <laughs>